For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, humorist Dave Barry shares some enlightened wisdom from his new book. A Book I Love lets people from the Tucson community recommend some of their favorite reads. Sound Fiction presents Aurelie Sheehan's mystical view of life on Speedway Boulevard. And we remember Leonard Nimoy, the poet. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. An unusual new entry in Amazon.com's parenting book section is the latest from Dave Barry. It's called Live Right and Find Happiness, although beer is much faster. Barry admits it doesn't contain much parenting advice, but it does contain his reflections on growing up as the son of a Presbyterian minister in the 1960s, embracing his nerdity in high school, and eventually becoming a parent himself. Barry will be visiting Tucson next week as a guest at the 2015 Tucson Festival of Books. Christopher Conover talked with Dave Barry about his career, starting at the beginning. I was an English major, so I, I graduated from college with no useful skill. <laughs> so, so I went into the writing game, but, and, and I started in the journalism side, which requires you to actually have information. You, know, you have to write down supposedly true things, which I found to be much too difficult. So I just went into the uh, end of journalism where you make everything up, and it, it's worked out really well for me. You ended up uh, in journalism in South Florida, where you also base a lot of your novels. It's a huge, rich canvas for... A target-rich environment. Anybody uh, who wants to write humor really should move to South Florida. Um, as Carl Heisen, who's a great South Florida writer, put it, you don't need an imagination at all. You just need a subscription to the Miami Herald. <laughs> you know, whatever strange, bizarre scenario, whatever venal characters you could imagine, the actual real-life stories of, the, of people in South Florida will surpass whatever you imagine any day. I'm a native South Floridian, so, so I inherently understand it. But what is it about South Florida that breeds such characters? I've read your books. I've read Carl's books. Uh, and having lived there, where do these characters come from? Well, part of it is that they all came from somewhere. It's not like uh, Ohio or, you know, or Detroit. It's not like someplace where people grow up and they, they sort of have a sense of this is my home, this is my place, this is, these are the traditions I grew up with. Everybody there came from somewhere. I mean, there are a few native uh, South Floridians, but not that many compared with the people who came from somewhere else. And a lot of times people don't come there for any particular productive reason. I mean, it's like a lot of people just go there to retire, which is fine. Nothing wrong with retiring, but it's, when you go there to retire, it's like, I'm just going to go here and hang out. I'm not, <laughs> not going to contribute much. I'm just going to enjoy myself. And then there's a lot of people who go there just for, as far as I can tell, purely criminal reasons. These are, of course, our elected officials. Um, you can be pretty weird and just blend in, in in Miami. You can't believe the people who are just wandering around the Florida Keys, and nobody judges them. Everybody's kind of strange uh, to begin with. It's always hot and humid, and there's always somebody's having a rum drink somewhere. It's, so it's just not a serious-feeling place. Um, and, and just festers there in the sun, and, and strange things happen. Let's talk about this new book. You kind of, uh, 
harken back to your own childhood and growing up. When you talk about uh, dating in high school, I, I think you refer to yourself not as the cute one, but the sarcastic one, and you, <laughs> yeah. you recount and, and your I, Halloween dance date. It's an essay called Bite Me, David Beckham, uh, and it's about my insecurities about my appearance. Uh, which date to my uh, middle and high school years, which is really when you sort of form your your image of yourself and it never changes. And mine was this like kind of hideous glasses-wearing, bad haircut dweeb that I was. I went to the Halloween dance with a girl and realized midway through the dance, so I was on one side of her, she was holding hands with the guy on the other side. <laughs> and I also put my uh, my high school yearbook photo is in the book, sort of as proof that I'm not kidding when I say what I looked like back then. And it, it reveals that one of the horrible truths about my childhood is my, my father cut my hair. And my dad was a great guy. He was a wonderful man. He was a Presbyterian minister, not a barber. Not, he was not trained in hair design. They don't train Presbyterian ministers to cut hair. And he, but he did it anyway because we didn't have a lot of money. And he bought these clippers at a drugstore. And whenever I see uh, politicians call for you know gun control and let's let's get assault rifles out of the hands of, of citizens, I say, okay, that's fine. But let's first get electric clippers out of the hands of people like my father <laughs> because they're doing untold damage to the psyches of their children. You also uh, move forward in life. You talk about your 20s and all the partying. I believe you. Uh, there was an incident involving drinks called Singapore slings and a horse being painted red. You did point out you used water-based paint, potentially. <laughs> uh, but and I, I, If the horse is listening to this interview, I, I just want to apologize. <laughs> and you said as you got to your 30s, something changed, and Amazon actually talks about your new book, and they classify it as parenting. Did, <laughs> did you ever think you would write a parenting book? No. Th uh, this is an essay called uh, The Real Mad Men, um, and it's really, the, the point of the essay is that I'm a baby boomer. My, my dad and mom were uh, greatest generation. They both came through the Great Depression. My mom grew up in, out in Nebraska and Colorado in the in Dust Bowl, and I, you know, kind of grew up thinking that I had more fun than they did, because I was, you know, the baby boomers, we had sex, drug, and rock and roll, we were hippies. And I realized um, much later on watching the show Mad Men that my parents, who grew up in the Mad Men era, had more fun than I did. I partied hard until, until I had kids. When I became a parent, uh, I started engaging in what we baby boomers call parenting, which is a verb that my, my parents' generation never would have used where we become obsessed with parenting. And our full-time job is focusing on our kids' happiness, removing all obstacles from their path, making sure that absolutely nothing dangerous ever happens. If they go trick-or-treating, we have to lurk eight feet away in the darkness, ready to pounce in case they get something dangerous, you know, making sure they don't have any gluten, that kind of thing. Whereas my parents' generation, when I think back on it, you know, they, had a, they had kids, of course, and they loved us, and they took care of us. They fed us and clothed us, and you know, but they didn't obsess over us. Uh, and I've talked to so many people since since I wrote this essay who remember the same thing. Their parents didn't sit around worrying about us. They partied, and they did things that no you're no longer allowed to do. They smoked cigarettes. They drank a lot. They had a lot of fun, and they didn't let being parents prevent them from having fun. And I think my generation, we kind of we kind of got pretty serious and, and pretty hardcore about the parenting part uh, and lost a lot of the fun part, the spontaneity. We just didn't give ourselves permission to have fun 
the way my parents' generation did. Not to get all philosophical, but are we having fun anymore, uh, or, <laughs> no, or was it over? No, I, I really honestly think, the more I think about it, we don't have the kind of fun, um, that the kind of innocent fun. My parents used to have these, in, I'm talking about people in their 30s and 40s, and they're all successful, but they had scavenger hunt parties, they had costume parties, they would put on skits and do the musical stuff, you know. Today, nobody, everybody's too hip for that. If you did it, you would do it ironically. You wouldn't do it just, like, for fun. You wouldn't play charades just because it's fun. Um, and they did. They didn't feel as guilty about their lives, and they didn't worry as much. They were just not into worrying. Over the years, you've written uh, for the Miami Herald columns. You've written novels. You've written books of essays like this one, a, a TV show. Uh, what was it like transitioning? Because those are all very different formats, yet it, you were juggling them all often at the same time. Um, well, yeah, except that you're confusing writing with work. <laughs> it's not that huge a jump to write in one medium, to write in another medium. You're still sitting down in front of a screen and trying to think of jokes is what it comes down to. And to me, I don't really care where the jokes come out on Twitter or in a, in a book or in a newspaper. Just as long as I get a joke out, I'm, I'm happy. So that's just sort of comes naturally to me to, to do that. As we wrap this up, everybody knows you as a writer. That's what we've been talking about. Little known fact, uh, you're also a musician. You're part of the Rock Bottom Remainders who are actually going to be playing here in Tucson. Talk a little bit about being a rock star. I just want to clarify that being a member of the Rock Bottom Remainders does not necessarily imply musicianship. <laughs> <laughs> we play a genre of music that uh, one of our members, Roy Blunt Jr., has described as hard-listening music. Um, we're a bunch of uh, authors. Um, and I think out there we're going to have Amy Tan, Scott Turow, Greg Isles, Ridley Pearson, Mitch Album, me, my brother Sam Barry. Um, we like to play music, and so we get together sporadically and usually at literary events um, like the Tucson Festival of Books and we and we uh, we play and we we try to be entertaining I do I do suggest that the people in the audience try to have a couple of drinks before we go because <laughs> we certainly will um, sometimes we're good enough that you might even recognize the song we're trying to play as the old saying goes the more you drink the better we sound Dave Barry talked with Christopher Conover. Barry will be one of hundreds of guest authors appearing at the 2015 Tucson Festival of Books next weekend on the campus of the University of Arizona. The band Rock Bottom Remainders with Dave Barry on guitar will kick off the festival with a benefit concert next Friday at 8 p.m. at the U of A Student Union Ballroom. There's a link for information at azpm.org. The Festival of Books makes a great place to ask people for reading suggestions. And next, we'll hear from attendees at last year's gathering who gave their unscripted, off-the-cuff opinions about some of their favorites. Here is A Book I Love. My name is Craig Bell. I'm from Tucson. I've lived here most of my life. And I really like to read history, history of all kinds. One book that I really love and that I've read a couple of times is um, Masters of the Air by Donald Dell Miller. It's a book about the 8th Air Force in England in World War II, and it focuses primarily on that. But I have never read a book that covered it so well and that actually brought the men who were involved in that to life for me. Usually there are facts and figures and key dates and things like that. To me, the Masters of the Air really was about the people that were involved in this. My name is Judith Meyer. 
and I've been in Tucson for nearly 10 years. I enjoy it immensely. It's a wonderful town. My favorite book that I've read in the last year is The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich, but I want to warn anyone who hears this that you should read Louise Erdrich's book, A Plague of Doves, before you read The Roundhouse because of the chronology of the grandfather's story. It's just best enjoyed that way. Louise Erdrich does exactly what I want out of literature. She transports me to a very real, different place uh, here in America, and she has very real characters and situations, and she tells a fabulous story. Hello, my name is Jose Bustamante, and I'm over here at the Festival of Books at the U of A. When I was about 15, I read uh, The Outsiders by uh, S.E. Hinton, and uh, I didn't know she was a woman, and she was 16 when she wrote that book, but the main character, he's, he's really smart, but yet he hangs around with a bunch of people that you would see, and you'd say, oh, they're not very smart. I guess it's like a stereotype. I had a lot of friends or a lot of people that I knew that grew up that way, you know, and uh, some of them had a good life, some of them had a bad life, but you know, you have to survive, so. Hi, my name's Leia. I'm 14 years old and I go to University High School. And I just love reading because I can read all types of books and it can take me to a different world and I can experience so many different things through books. The book I love is Divergent by Veronica Roth. It's very similar to The Hunger Games, so I think it appeals to people who liked reading that series. It talks about a dystopian uh, society it's about a world that's very different from ours, where everyone has to kind of fit into their own part in society, and the government kind of rules everything. So it's, it covers interesting themes, and it really helped me understand like the relook at our society and how we run it, and all the things that are wrong with it, and how it can be fixed, but um, how it can be dangerous, what certain ways to fix our society. Hi, I'm Kelly Leidick. I'm here at the Tucson Festival of Books. I'm the author of Mastering the Dream. I think one of my favorite books is The Time Traveler's Wife. It's this brilliant depiction of the love story of Henry and Claire, these, these two, two lovers who really bring together the idea of, of what is intimacy. Um, you know, the fact that Henry's a time traveler, I think, begs this question of what does it mean to be intimate? What does it mean to know another human being? Can we ever know, truly know, um, the depths of another human being? My name is Vicki Hathaway. I'm a mom and a photographer, and I'm here today at the book fair at the University of Arizona. About a year ago, uh, me and my friends in this uh, Nook Club book club that we're in, uh, we decided to read John Dies at the End by David Wong, uh, simply because we were looking for something that was humorous, and we kind of liked the idea of a horror humor book, and so we started reading it. And usually I don't like horror stories because it can be a little bit intense, but this was just fantastic. It's incredibly random and very great comedic timing that, uh, and it's a great storyline from start to finish that's, that seems to not connect or, or, or make sense, but once you get through you realize this whole book uh, take, takes you on an amazing journey. And they've since written a sequel that I've also read called This Book is Full of Spiders, and that one is just as equally good, and I'm hoping that David Wong comes out with more stories after this. My name's John Crow. I was a professor of literature at uh, Miami University for 30 years, and uh, I'm retired now, and uh, I don't read much literature anymore. Right now, I'm in the process of reading a book uh, called The American Healthcare Paradox, and it's something I've been curious about for a long time, why we spend so much on healthcare and get so little in return. And when you look at the data, you know, our 
maternal deaths are higher than uh, other OECD countries, uh, infant uh, mortality is higher, and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, lifespans are, are less in this country. And uh, the thesis of this book is that uh, our health care co costs are rising rapidly and we're getting a poor return for it because we uh, shortchange our social services. Many of the problems that result in negative health care outcomes are the result of inadequate social services. And we can't afford to continue on the path that we're on. And if you want to know why, you would read a book on healthcare paradox. My name is Bill Mark. I'm from Tucson, Arizona, and I'm a kindergarten teacher at John E. White Elementary School in TUSD. Uh, I'm going to recommend a children's book, actually, that the kids in my class absolutely adore. It's called The Monster at the End of This Book, and it's a golden book. It's a Sesame Street book uh, starring lovable furry old Grover. The first page, the title, it says uh, there's a monster at the end of this book, and so Grover's very nervous about going to the next page because we're getting closer and closer to the monster at the end of the book. And so he says, please do not turn the page. And the kids all chant, don't turn the page. And of course, I turn the page. And at the end of the book, the monster at the end of the book is, spoiler alert, lovable furry old Grover. And I like the book because it kind of teaches the kids the fears that we have are basically from within. And that uh, we all have things that we fear but they're easy to overcome when you recognize that they're self-created. Those were some of the many voices who shared stories with me at last year's Tucson Festival of Books. I'll be collecting more this year. You can find out how to participate at the Arizona Public Media booth at the Book Festival next Saturday and Sunday. This is Sound Fiction, a chance to enter the world of a short story or novel as read by its author. When University of Arizona writing professor Aurelie Sheehan was seeking inspiration for a new book, she found it behind the facade of one of Tucson's busiest streets. Projecting the mythology of the Greek gods onto this urban landscape, she created a series of stories called Demigods on Speedway. Next, Aurelie Sheehan reads an excerpt called In Equal Measure. A girl named Artesia, who bears a resemblance to the Greek goddess Artemis, has her first meeting with a boy named Paul. In another context, she might recognize Paul as her beloved twin Apollo. But instead of Mount Olympus, their meeting occurs in the kitchen of a small cafe somewhere on Speedway Boulevard. She felt, most of all, that he was beautiful. In the beginning, she had let herself hope he was in a certain way for her, that he'd been sent down to earth as her twin, the finishing of something left undone. The first time Artesia saw him, blonde, radiant, she was making salads in the kitchen at the restaurant. The lettuce came in squat cardboard crates from California, Bella fruit and vegetable, written in old-fashioned script on both the crates and the truck they came in on. The pretty, faded lettering reminded Artesia of movie poverty. Boxy cars huffing by, 
wandering girls in dresses made of chicken feed sacks. What those girls lacked in funds, they made up for in pluck, maybe virtue, at least while the camera was rolling. What would you do today to create that scene? How would you costume the poor? Artesia thought of other girls in her GED class, the one whose blouse was ripped along the shoulder, a little ladder of seeing skin. She thought of the tannish gray people who stand around and have nowhere to go, who never shower. Artesia and her sister and mother have a shower. Of course they have a shower. Artesia's mother says, so long as you have a job, you aren't poor. Heads of lettuce like fluffy friends, gleaming green under the water. The tomatoes come in a tight plastic bag, and the mushrooms are packed into balsa wood squares. Cucumbers, red cabbage, red onions, heaps of carrots. The raw product seems redundant, extravagant, before she sets to it, cuts, rips, slices. Artesia drowns the lettuce, lets it pop up again. She looks at all the colors. Her hands were chilly in the sink when he came in with Mario. If she had to put a description to Mario, she'd say he was a scarf of sound, in the air long before he arrived and still unfurling after he was gone. Managers come in their own special boxes too, like lettuce, like mushrooms. That day, Mario was wearing a steel gray shirt and silver tie, nightclub worthy. It was almost five when they unlocked the front door. Late May in Tucson, which is like saying that outside is an incinerator. Here you've got your butter patties, your lemons. You'll be cutting up a dozen at least before the shift even begins, sometimes more. Always check how many are left from lunch. You want to get, I don't know, 10 slices out of every lemon. Lemons are expensive. You want to know how many waters we serve every night? So you're not going to be hacking the lemons. Beautiful thin slices, nice and attractive. It all adds up. You might not think it matters, but it does. This is Artesia, sous chef. What's up, Artesia? This is Paul. The young man trailing Mario was wearing a skull cap, bright curls emerging from underneath the black wool. Around his ears and over his eyes, a fringe of sunlight or gold. He was tall, but not gawky, thin, not fragile. Jeans, a black t-shirt. What's up, said Paul. She gets the salads ready. Salads and vegetables and bread, right, Artesia? Servers dress the salads, put butter bowls in with the bread. You've got your blue cheese, your ranch, your vinaigrette, your diet raspberry vinaigrette. Some people want it on the side. Yes, sir, yes, ma'am. On the side, here you go. Little bowls just for you. Your word is precious. Your word, your desires, whatever you want. The tub is always filled with ice, beyond important to keep the dressings cold. We don't want anybody getting salmonella and suing our butts. Then we're all out of a job, see what I mean? Dishwasher station, pretty obvious. Buss it in, separate out the knives. Blade down, glasses, napkins in here. They shared a look underneath the Mario sound scarf. Paul's eyes, they were filled with light. They seemed to shed light actual illumination in the poorly configured kitchen with the anti-light fluorescence and the stainless steel and grease-stained walls with no windows at all except one peeking window in the back door what is beauty 
Its personal nature was what Artesia felt at that moment. Not just discrimination, but exclusion. Everyone excluded but her. That was a sample from R.L.E. Sheehan's new story collection, Demigods on Speedway, with sound design by Mitchell Riley. Sheehan will be participating in panels next Saturday and Sunday at the Tucson Festival of Books. She'll also be signing her book on Sunday at the UA Press Tent. You can find a link to the schedule at azpm.org. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind The death of Leonard Nimoy last Friday at age 83 was sad news to many. In addition to accomplishments as an actor, director, musician, and photographer, Nimoy was a poet who authored more than a dozen books. Some of his work resides in the library at the University of Arizona Poetry Center, where an exhibit paying tribute to celebrity poets was held in 2011. Next, you'll hear an example of Nimoy's poetry, as read by Matthew Conley, followed by Poetry Center librarian Wendy Burke, with comments about a side of Leonard Nimoy that not everyone was aware of. This is Warmed by Love by Leonard Nimoy. There is in me a being little known to others, a person, man or boy, locked away. I believe that he is me, more me than the one anyone knows, and that he deserves at least a trial before being sealed away, forever locked inside the public face. I am still a child, Thrilled by a sunrise, touched by a bird song, delighted by a clown, frightened by hatred, hurt by rejection, saddened by pain, warmed by love. I find Leonard Nimoy's poetry to be particularly interesting because it's really completely without pretension. Yes, that's true. This is work that comes from the heart, that speaks very plainly, that many people can relate to because they have experienced similar feelings. And I think that as a poet, yeah, he's writing to express himself, but he's also really trusting that there is going to be somebody who hears this and understands. And in fact, he's correct. His poetry has a devoted following. Part of that is because, you know, we think it's great. Um, He's Spock, and yet he writes poetry. And he actually writes a lot about the tension between seeing himself as Spock and seeing himself as not Spock. But it's also because they, um, they get a feeling from his poetry that they're not alone. So maybe he's writing to reassure himself that he's not alone. That was U of A Poetry Center librarian Wendy Burke, recorded in 2011 discussing Leonard Nimoy, the poet. Thank you for listening to the show. You can now listen to Arizona Spotlight on the go. Search for the podcast on iTunes and subscribe. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. 
I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.